Welcome, everybody. So glad to be together. And we are in 1 Samuel today. As you're turning there, I just want to make you aware of a few things happening here at the church. Um, first is that we are having a Getting Connected class, which is a way that you can just learn more about the church. So if you are interested in joining, being a part of this community, um, and you want to know more about the church, uh, this is uh, part of the process. And so we'll have a class next Sunday after church. We'll feed you, and then we get to spend a couple of hours together just talking through your questions and the questions of others and us just kind of walking through what our church is about and uh, those kind of things so that we can get to know one another. So uh, all we ask is that if you're interested in that, if you could RSVP, that way we have enough food for you. Uh, that would be our delight to be with you. So that's next week, uh, immediately following the second service. Uh, also, you'll notice uh, on your uh, bulletin here on the back that over the summer and into the fall, we're taking two trips to encourage some of the uh, workers that we have sent out from our church body uh, to all over the globe to help plant churches or aid in church planting we're going to go and take trips to encourage them and to join them in their work. So you will see both the locations and the costs and the dates of those trips. And if you would like to know more about that, you can contact um, Pastor Travis, who did the baby dedication, and he can let you know more about those things. Uh, finally, um, we want to remind you of summer camp, but summer camp is part of something broader here at TCC, and that's the Loving the City Initiative. That is basically, we, are, we want to make sure that we as a body are dreaming and praying and using every resource that we have to bless our city. How can we love this city that we have been granted to be a part of by our great God? And so part of that is that we use the facility that he's given us to try to bless the community. So uh, we are... Um, doing something called the Loving the City Center. It's how we use this facility throughout the week as a safe place, as a place to develop community and care for needs. We have uh, literacy training we do through the YMCA. We also partner with Gateway in Wake County, and they do STD and pregnancy testing and counseling for at-risk um, teens or those who are struggling with whether to keep their child. We also do uh, construction classes. We've got almost 10 guys that are going through uh, construction classes right now with North Carolina home builders to learn skills so that they can be more marketable in the job world. We're just trying to use this space um, in order to, to bless our city. Well, as we are growing here as a body and as the opportunities to serve the city are growing, we also need to be thinking about how we can expand the footprint of this facility. So as we talked about at our family meeting last Sunday, we are uh, seeking to raise money annually to help support that initiative. And now that we've figured out that the goal could be if we raise enough over the next several years that we could uh, be breaking ground in the next year and a half to two years. So uh, what we are praying for is that people would begin to pray and dream about how they as individuals or families uh, can participate in giving above and beyond the general gift that supports all the existing ministries, uh, give above and beyond that to our Loving the City offering. And that offering will go uh, towards the expansion of this facility on our property here. And 5% of it will go towards church planting. So whether church planting nationally or internationally, those funds will go directly towards uh, spreading because we will not lose that part of our DNA. So we encourage you to pray about that. And then the offering will be May the 22nd. That's when you can give or you can pledge. 
And we just, we just are asking God to move and to clarify uh, how we can sacrifice and participate for uh, these ends. So we encourage you to do so. We have also been given a matching gift of $16,000. And so um, we'll lay out an email coming up soon, uh, probably today or tomorrow, that will explain some of the details of that. But if you give within a certain parameter, your gift will be matched um, because of this uh, matching gift that's been given to us. So just exciting to see how God is already at work. And we uh, encourage you to pray and seek the Lord's face on how you can participate. So friends, let's dive in here. Uh, to 1 Samuel. We are in a series entitled Forever Changed. And what this is, is people in the scriptures who have encountered the living God have experienced his power and how he has changed them and then how that should have a direct effect upon our lives. First guy was Moses that we saw. The second one was Jeremiah. Last week we saw Zacchaeus. And today on Mother's Day, we get to look at Hannah and how she encountered the glory of the living God. Next week, we begin a new series, a study over the book of James entitled Faithful. And so if you are interested in learning more about that book, I encourage you to just go ahead and start reading that. And it is going to be a great journey of just studying this book of the Bible together and seeing how God gives faith and gives us the strength to be faithful. So I'm excited about it, but let's dive into 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 today. I'm going to read verses 3 through uh, seven, and then after that, I will um, pray, and then we'll, we'll go at it. The word of the Lord says this. Now this man, the man's name is Elkanah, and Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. They used to go up, verse three, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, that's foreshadowing. We won't know why that's included in this passage. It's actually later on in the book, but that's why it's mentioned here at the beginning. Now, on the day, verse 4, when Elkanah sacrificed, which is what you would do to worship as a memorial of your sins and your request for forgiveness, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Let's pray. Father, right now I ask that you would take us where we are and you would humble our hearts to see that our greatest need in all the earth is that we see you and know you and experience you Everything else is wonderful, but it's secondary. And so, Father, for the glory of your name, give us a desire for you that would exceed all other desires. May we pray with David, our our flesh and our heart may fail, 
but you're the strength of our lives and our portion forever. You are enough. And so, Father, in this moment, just move in power. I pray that right now, as I pray in the hearts of each individual right now, that they would call out and ask for you to move specifically in their lives and in the lives of one another in this room. That, Father, we would experience a fresh wind of your spirit that would encourage the faint-hearted and uphold the weak, give strength to all. God, we ask for more of you in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today's Mother's Day. It's a good day. The Bible says, whether you feel like it or not, children are a blessing from the Lord. Okay? Some of you need convincing of that. Others of you, you're convinced of it already. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a gift. Even in the hard days, they are a gift. And for that, we are thankful. Some of those gifts say funny things. So there was one mom who was talking about her child. Mama's name is Autumn. Had a four-year-old at bedtime. And the four-year-old said this. Mommy, I love you, but we seem to have our differences. Because she didn't want to go to bed. (laughs) Had a different definition of bedtime. Mom's name is Becky. Becky reports this, when I told my then six-year-old son that I was expecting our third child, he said, quote, you've got to be kidding me. Do you know how hard it is to raise three kids, mom? She said he was right. (laughs) Then there was mom named Rhonda. As we were walking through the store, she says, my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter looks at me and asks, Why do I always have to match my clothes and you don't? (laughs) You hear the bus running backwards over mama. (laughs) Ran her under the bus. So part of being a mama is the joy of hearing just funny statements. Part of being a parent is the joy of hearing funny statements. Part of just working with kids at all, if you're around them enough, you get the joy of seeing their Young, little, unfiltered minds and mouths just go. And we want to highlight that that's a blessing. It's a blessing to moms to be able to experience those things. But the role of a mom is not only laughter. It's more than that. My mind was drawn to the story of a missionary man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the most widely used missionary in China's history. He served for 51 years. He created what was known as the China Inland Mission. Over 20 mission stations brought over 849 missionaries to the field in his 51 years. Trained some 700 Chinese workers. Raised over $4 million by faith alone, not on a marketing program, but just by praying. And developed a witnessing Chinese church of over 125,000 Chinese believers who shared their faith regularly and watched the gospel spread even to this day throughout the country of China. It has been said that through Hudson Taylor, his own personal proclamation of the good news of Jesus, 35,000 people profess faith in Jesus Christ just through his mouth 
alone, and that he baptized around 50,000 individuals. Remarkable life. And it was all born on the prayers of his mom and daddy. His mom and dad, before he ever existed, prayed that God would give them a child that would go to China to live his life for God's name. They took seriously the promise of Psalm 127, which says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior, and they knew that their job as a parent was to pull back the arrows of their children by faith and fling them out into the world so that the world might be one for Christ. And it was on the backs of these prayers that you hear the story of rebellious 17-year-old Hudson Taylor coming to faith. For 17 years, he did not follow his parents' God. He rebelled. He ran. He left his parents' home. And it was when Hudson was 17 years old that his mom, 75 miles away from where Hudson was, was struck with the burden to do what she had been doing for 17 years, but struck in an acute way to bow down and to pray and to plead for her son's salvation. And she bowed behind closed doors and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed hours upon end. And then it was like this wind of the Spirit blew into her soul and gave her this sense of, it has happened. It has happened. And she stood up and she was at peace. And at the very same moment, a few cities away, At the exact same time she was praying, Hudson Taylor picked up a little gospel track that talked about how one could come to faith in Jesus, and it was entitled, It Is Finished. And when he read that track, he said, What is finished? And he began to read it and understand what it meant that Jesus died in his place and died the death that he deserved and that his sins were forever paid for on the cross, but were he to deny Jesus, he would spend an eternity separated in judgment apart from God. There was this sense of his need for Christ, and he professed faith in Jesus. A few days later, he runs to his mom, and he says, Mom, I have trusted in Christ. And she says, I know. God had already confirmed it in my heart. The role of a mom, the role of a parent, the role of a church to be those who cultivate laughter, but also cultivate happy-hearted arrows to be flung out into our city and to the ends of the earth. This is the role of a mama and of a parent. And today we get to see the story of another mom, Hannah. And today Hannah has an encounter with the living God. And what is interesting is she encounters the living God through prayer, but also encounters him through her obedience. Something that happens not only when she was bowing down, but when she was just walking in the everyday, she experienced God. And here's what we see. As Hannah encounters the glory of the living God, we see three things. We see her persistence in the face of silence. We see her pleading in the face of pain, and we see her praising in the face of lowliness. Persistence in the face of silence, that is God's silence, 
She's calling out and doesn't hear an answer, yet she stays persistent. Pleading in the face of pain, the pain of barrenness and infertility. Praising in the face of lowliness. She was the lowly one. And as a result, she's forever changed. So let's dive into it. Persistence in the face of silence. As I'd said already, Elkanah is a man who was religious and spiritual. He says he has two wives. Nowhere in the scriptures is that commended. It's just stated as a fact. Even for David, it's actually um, not recommended. It's discouraged. He's told not to do so, he and Solomon. But here, Elkanah has two wives. Look at verse 2. The name of the one was Hannah, more than likely because she was the first. And the name of the other was Peninnah. But what's the difference between the two? Peninnah had children, but Hannah could not. It sounds eerily familiar to a story earlier in the book of Genesis where Abraham had a wife, the wife that God had given her, but she could not bear children. And so instead of following God's plan, Abraham doesn't end around and has relations with Hagar so that they might have a child. More than likely, we're looking at a similar story. Because of the discontentment with Hannah's infertility, Elkanah gets another wife, one that could have children. Now, it says in verse 3, this man used to go up year after year to, this, to the city of Shiloh to worship. So everywhere you see Shiloh, this is where uh, the temple was. This would be where they would bow down and worship, and so this is where he would go, the tabernacle. And so on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give some to Peninnah and some to Hannah. But look at what it says. He loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. There's a lot of grief when it comes to barrenness. My wife and I had a short stint of infertility. We were told that she was infertile, and it went on for like a year and a half. And I've walked with so many people who I say short stint because you've been going through this for years, and there might seem to be no light at the end of the tunnel. But I know the pain of trying and not being able to. I know the pain of seeing everybody else around having kids, and you can't. And the fight in the soul not to get jealous, especially when the other moms talk about how they would like to wring those kids' necks or get rid of those children, and you're just pleading that you could have one. It's hard. It's hard. Some of you struggle with that even in this moment. And others of you, you couldn't stomach coming on Mother's Day to church, and so you might listen to this message via online, but you might just skip this one because the pain's too great. It's difficult when you want something so badly, and yet it, it doesn't happen. It's hard. But can you imagine what Hannah is going through in this moment? I think there's something unique about barrenness 
that those who go through it need to take as some silver lining. And that is this. When you are barren, it is crystal clear that you can't do this. And God must show up. You can't, and only God can. Do you see how Samuel couches this? Says it twice in this chapter. The Lord had closed the womb. And Hannah is pleading that that would not be the case. And yet the Lord has closed the womb. So what's Hannah's response? What's it going to be? For many of us, the temptation would be, well, if I don't hear from him, then why in the world would I go to worship him year after year? Sacrifice year after year. And let me just make it more difficult. Look at the next verse, verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Can you imagine? It's hard enough to know you can't conceive, but then to know you're the problem because obviously he can have children with others. And those, that other one takes the trip with you annually, and as you're going, she tells you how you're the problem. And she parades her children around saying, look at me. Look at what I can do and you can't why the text calls her a rival, provoking. Can you imagine that? The temptation would be off the charts to say, sorry, bud, not taking the trip. I don't hear from the Lord, and when I go, she keeps rattling in my ear all this mess. No thanks. What does Hannah do? It says, verse 7, so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. Do you hear what she did? She kept going. Hannah kept going. As often as, she, as they went, they, she would go year by year to worship the Lord. She did not give up on God, even though she did not hear an answer. And even though she was being provoked. It says Hannah wept and would not eat. But what we see Hannah doing in verse 10 is continuing to pray to the Lord. She persisted in the midst of silence. And I just encourage you, those of you who cannot have children right now, I encourage you, don't give up on the Lord. Don't give up on the Lord. Those of you who have kids, but their behavior is not changing, don't give up on the Lord. Those of you who want so desperately to be married at all, and there doesn't seem to be a candidate around, don't give up on the Lord. Those of you who don't have a job, those of you who are struggling with finances, and you've been pleading and pleading, you've been working and working, and it hasn't happened, don't give up on the Lord. Like the one wounded vet from Afghanistan who felt like giving up because he had stepped on an IED and lost a portion of his leg. He felt like just ending his life. And yet because he did not, and he didn't give up, he had a family, 
He learned how to use his prosthesis, and he now competes in the Special Olympics with something that once was a disability has turned into be something that causes him to celebrate much. Don't give up. He would never have experienced those joys were he to have given up. But you might ask, why the silence? Why doesn't he ever answer? And I just want to be flat out honest with you. I don't know. I don't know. But this I do know. This I do know. As a parent, there are times that I tell my children, wait, and they don't get it. When my eight-year-old wants to watch a movie, and I preview it before she watches it, and I know she's got a sensitive mind. She's tempted to have nightmares and things like that. And I say, no, honey, you're not old enough to watch this movie. She could think, he is just a meanie head. He's just a bad dad. She can import all of these things into my motives. He just wants to make my life miserable. He's trying to withhold good things from me. But I can tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I'm withholding and I'm saying wait because I love her. And I have a perspective that she doesn't have. And if I can have that, 30 plus years removed from my daughter, how much more the creator of the universe has a different perspective than I have. I want to be God so much, but he's the only one that qualifies for that job description. He's the only one that's got the perspective. So why the silence? I don't know. But I know this, that he has a purpose and a plan. And Jesus tells us this in Luke 18. Jesus is talking to some people who are struggling with a silent God and are tempted to want to give up in prayer. And here's what Jesus says. Hey, let me tell you a story, and here's why I'm going to tell you the story. I always like it when Jesus tells me why he's telling stories. I've got a weak mind, so I need to know why he says what he says. He says this. He told them a parable to the effect that they, all, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here's why this story is coming, so that you don't stop praying. You don't give up praying, and you don't lose heart. Here's the story. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So you got the picture? An unjust judge. A judge that has no regard for God and no regard for humanity except himself. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice, because that's what a judge is supposed to do, enact justice, against my adversary. She's being oppressed and he's supposed to do something about it. That is, is his job. Well, for a while he refused. He's a bad judge. He's not doing anything about it. Eh, I don't want anything to do with this. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, just highlighting how unjust he is, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not keep coming at me. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, well, if the unjust judge does this, 
how much more will I, when the elect cry out day and night, enact justice for them? And he says, will I delay long over them? No, I will give it to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is saying, do you trust me? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's like saying, if my car, a 2002 Hyundai Elantra, however you say that first word, can make it from my house in southeast Raleigh to the church building, how much more will a brand new Porsche off the lot get from my house to downtown Raleigh? It's like, okay, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, if an unjust judge who has no regard for anything but himself still answers the persistence of this widow, how much more will the God of the universe who proved his love through the death of his son, how much more is he listening to you and caring for you and is acting for you even when you think he's not? And so you ask why the silence? I want to say, I don't know, but I do know this. Our God loves you, and you can believe him. We have more confirmation, and we forget it. You can believe him, and he loves you. There's too much confirmed. Follow me. He created the world, and he created you. He parted the Red Sea to save his people. He made a field of dry bones live and put flesh on it. He turned the water into wine. He fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish and had 12 baskets left over. He stopped a raging storm with his words. He walked on water. He raised a man from the dead. He raised a little girl from the dead. He healed the blind by simply touching them. He healed another man being cities away by just saying the words. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. And he's changed so many of you in this room. He is alive. He is at work. He keeps his word. And he has proven he loves you. I've seen too many marriages healed in this church. I've seen too many of you do the hard work of saying, I forgive you when someone has betrayed you because you have experienced the forgiveness of God. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and now he asks you, in the midst of your ignorance and my ignorance, when we don't know why the silence exists, to persist, to not give up, to keep going after him, and to trust him with the days ahead. He wants us to persist because he wants all of you. He doesn't want just part of you. He wants every part of you, and that leads us to the next section. We also see Hannah's pleading in the face of pain. We not only see her persistence in the face of silence, but we see her pleading in the face of pain. So Hannah has chosen to weep and not to eat, and her husband is concerned. And as it happens, when our wives are fragile, men get insecure, okay? Men, you don't believe me? Just look at these next words. It says, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? 
why don't you eat? And this is the men trying to fix it, right? I just, won't you stop, please? I can't make you stop crying. I want you to eat. Man, you're not liking me right now, but I'm still plugging on. And then he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? What about me? What about my feelings? I know you've done it. I know you have. I have. What about me? And Hannah's just saying, not that I don't love you. This is a desire of my heart. There's a capacity to love multiple things in varying degrees and shapes and sizes and nothing be at jeopardy. But God wanted her to have more than a love for a child. He wanted her heart. And so what does Hannah do with her pain? What does she do with the fact that over and over, year after year, she's been ridiculed by those outside and she's just torn up inside? It says in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, which is the one more trip that they had taken, Hannah rose up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. In verse 10, Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What did she do? The counseling world today says either stuff your tears or explode your pain. Just get it out. Just yell at the top of your lungs, just get it out. Or just shove it down in, act like it's not a big deal. Both of those will make you miserable and it will only exponentially increase your pain. Hannah gives us an example of what we do in the midst of our times of deep distress. You bow and you pray those things to the Lord. He wants them. He wants the rawness. He wants the bitterness of your weeping. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He doesn't want the made up you. He wants you. And so maybe your tears and your pain, maybe they're not the issue of infertility like Hannah's, but maybe it is just overwhelming times of fear and anxiety. Maybe it's sin that you've committed that you struggle to get past. Maybe it's physical pain that you are in. Maybe it's an emotional attack from the inside or from those on the outside. They're just saying things that are not true, abuse or confusion, relationship tension. No matter what it is, the tears come and the pain grows. And Hannah is a picture of a woman who knows what to do with her pain. She bows down and she cries out to the Lord. Every tear and fear reminds us of our need for God. And the prayer is, oh God, keep us from filling it with anything else but you. We can fill it with something else. We can drink a little more. We can eat a little more. We can buy a little more. We can work a little more. We can fill it with a lot of things. But healing comes when you take the deep distresses of the heart and you call out to God. God can handle your rawness. 
In Psalm 39, if you read the Psalms, it's filled with all kinds of calling out to God. But Psalm 39 is this beautiful picture of someone who's really struggling in their own personal life. And what do they do with it? And I want you to look. Psalm 39, verses 12 and 13, the Bible says this. This distressed individual says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. And give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Do you hear him? I just need peace in the midst of my tears. Don't hold them back. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all of my fathers. He's basically saying, I feel like I'm not part of the family. I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I'm a guest, sojourner. And then look at what he says. He prays to God this. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. And the psalm ends. That's not true. Theologically, biblically speaking, it's not true that you get joy if God leaves you. But that's how he feels. And it was preserved in Scripture so that God can communicate, I'm okay with your desperation. We're not going to stay there, but I'm okay with your desperation. Friends, God wants your rawness. I do want to caution, I do want to caution that as you share your heart with the Lord, and you should, you should ask and you should share. But we also want to take a caution given by Pastor John Piper, when he says, be careful. In condoning or encouraging biblical complaints before God, beware lest you justify that for which Job had to repent in dust and ashes. What does it mean? It means bring all of your rawness to God. Don't fix yourself up. But don't pretend like every word that comes out of your mouth is right and gospel. Just share it. Share it to the Lord. But eventually, over time, there might be some things that even came out of your mouth in those lowest of moments that one day you have to say, that wasn't right. And oh God, I need to repent of that. But Hannah here in this moment, she bowed her head to the Lord And this is in part why the silence persisted. God wanted her total surrender. Listen to what she prays. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow. That means she's praying this prayer, this commitment to the Lord, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. It was called a Nazarite vow. It was a way to communicate 100% kind of total surrender. What is she saying? If you give me a child, he will be 100% wholly yours. You hear it? It's surrender. It's surrender. She got to a place. We don't know the full journey, 
But she got to a place where she was able to say, the end goal of my life is not this child. Children are a blessing, but the end goal of my life is you. You are enough. I want you. You are my everything, and I want what you want for me. This is Hannah's prayer of surrender. And what you begin to see in this prayer is what all good prayers are to be filled with, both a sense of asking for the stars, give me a son, open my womb, and I surrender all that I'm asking into your hands. Surrender and ask. That's prayer. And so, friends, I don't know about you, but I struggle in my own personal prayer life with distraction. I got four kids, that's distracting enough. But I got distracting things going on up in here. With, if I didn't have four kids, I'd still be a distracted mess. And as I go to pray, zoo, 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 all kinds of thoughts come up. I want to check email, I want to read news, I want to see who won the last game with the Warriors or the Cavs. I mean, all this stuff just zipping around in my brain and I'm supposed to be bowing down before the Lord. Sometimes the only success I can have when it comes to prayer is praying out loud. Praying out loud. Some of the sweetest times are me in the car praying out loud. And I know that person that I pull up next to is looking at me, moving my mouth, and thinking I'm crazy. But I'm telling you, it's the only way it works. That or writing it down. But I encourage you. I encourage you, we make too many excuses as to why we cannot stop and get alone with God. And I'm saying right now, fight with all your might to get alone with God because he wants you, he wants to be with you, and it's in that relationship that your heart will grow to learn surrender, even if your bitterness and your weeping is towards him. Go to him, share it with him. He will change you in the moment. And so, when you pray, you pray your heart, and then you pray promises. Friends, there are truckloads of promises in the Scripture. Why are we memorizing Scriptures as a church? There's a little pamphlet out there on the Getting Connected table of Scriptures we're memorizing. Why are we doing that? Because they're fuel for the times of prayer when you don't have a clue what to pray. We're memorizing right now in my family Psalm 34. We were just talking about it at the dinner table the other night. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. No good thing. I believe that sometimes. I struggle to believe it other times. What about you? You pray it. You take it and you say, God, I'm raw. I'm a mess. I need you I feel really down. I feel really sad, but I'm going to pray this. I know that those who seek the Lord like no good thing cause my heart to trust that. Make my heart agree with your word. You've proven yourself to be faithful. Why am I doubting you? Oh, God, help me, not doubt. Call out to him so that your prayers and pleading in the midst of pain can turn into praise in the face of your lowliness. And that's where Hannah ends. Hannah gives birth to a child. God grants her request. 
for a year. She nurses the child. And a year later, after the child is weaned, you can imagine, you've been with this child for a year. The temptation to want to go back on that word so strong, and yet she says, let's go. We're going to Shiloh, we're taking the child, and she says in verse 28, therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. It's this verb of surrender. I've given him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. And what we get is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's Hannah's prayer. It's Hannah's song. And where does she begin? She begins with, my heart exalts in the Lord. She just gave her child over, and she's not going to see her kid much. My heart exalts in the Lord. What causes values to flip upside down that says, God, you are more important than my kids? It's the taking the rawness and taking the pain, and spending time over God's word, and calling out to him. And that relationship refines the heart so that you can rejoice and see God's purposes in what he's doing. And Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength, she might feel pretty weak, right? My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is able to deride my enemies, those who were constantly saying God's never going to show up. Look at what's happening to them now, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She is worshiping and praising God, and this whole song is just a communication that God is trustworthy, and you can take him at his word. But what's really interesting is that in the New Testament, this is quoted when Mary sings a song about Jesus being given to her and placed in her womb. And what she highlights when Mary sings a portion of this song is how God has taken lowly, humble Mary and is going to do miraculous things through the lowly. And that's what Hannah speaks of right here. I was the lowly, barren woman. I was the outcast. Many times people would even associate barrenness with, oh, you've got a lack of faith. This was your sin that put you where you were. Can you imagine just the shame and the guilt and all of that you carry alongside? And God chose that woman in her lowliness, in that shame, to say, I'm gonna do great things through you. Barrenness in the scripture was a remarkable, pivotal moment in the history of the Scriptures, in the history of God's work. Abraham and Sarah, she was barren. All of a sudden, the people of God began to flourish. Hannah was barren. Samuel comes in as a rescuer for the people of God. Right before Jesus comes, Elizabeth is barren, and John the Baptist comes forth. God delights to take the lowly and to do great things. You see it in this text, verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. You hear that? The lowly, the weak, the feeble, they get strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to be hungry. You see the picture? Hungry, weak, poor, they've been given strength. Why barrenness? 
God could have accomplished his plan in some other way. Why barrenness? Because he chose to highlight his strength. When he takes one who cannot do and he does, he gets the glory. And that's what he's after because that's what we need. The temptation is for moms or parents to say, look at what I've done in raising these kids. Just have more than one and you will not think highly of yourself any longer. I mean it. You can do one sometimes and think I'm okay. But even after a while, that one is is too much for us. But when you realize if you feel like you've licked one and you got another one and they're totally different, it's just like, good night. What happened? I'm not as competent as I used to be. Or when we do well at work, we're tempted to boast in our confidence. God chooses the lowly, the weak, the poor in order to exalt that he is able. It'd be like if you go to a concert, let's say you really, there's somebody you really love watching. And you want to go to this concert, but the concert venue is such that it's not stadium seating so everybody can see. It's one of those kind of mob gigs so that you, if you're short, you can't see. And what if the person that you've loved for years, you've listened to the music, you just love them for years, all of a sudden they found out you couldn't see. You just want to be able to see them. And so they send their bodyguard to you and they take you and they usher you to the front row. You're there in the front row. Why are you in the front row? So that you can see the, see the person. And then what if the bodyguard comes up and puts a mirror right in front of your face? and angles it towards him and say, now that's what you really need to look at, the bodyguard. How stupid. That's what we do. God delights to take the lowly because it shows that he alone can do it so that when it happens, we have only to boast and to see God's work. But sometimes, even when we were lowly and he shows up and work, we forget and we lean on our own strength. It's like flipping the mirror and pointing it towards ourselves. God desires to get glory for himself. And I want you to know something else. You know what with Hannah? You don't hear from her again. After chapter 2, no more Hannah. What happened to Hannah? Here's what we know. Every year, verse 19, every year she would make a robe And take it to her son. She was a nurturer. And we know in verse 21 of chapter (coughs) 2 that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. God didn't have to do that, but he did it. She had five other kids. That's pretty cool for the barren woman. But you never hear from Hannah again. Why? Because no matter all that we've said, The point is not Hannah. The point is Hannah's God. The point is Hannah's God. The points are this. Persist in the face of silence because God is at work even when you can't see it. The point is this. Plead in the face of pain because God is present in your pain. Praise him in the face of lowliness Because in your lowliness, God has proven he delights to lift up the lowly. This is a story about God. So I have a Mother's Day message for you. Mother's Day message. Here it goes. Some of you are genuinely wonderful moms. If there was some type of mom contest, you should enter it. 
You're just a wonderful mom. Others of you, you're good moms, but you don't think you are. You focus a lot more on all your failures than you do the grace of God in your life. Others, there are moms that are neglectful. Some of you have experienced that. Mother's Day isn't a joy sometimes because it wasn't a good relationship. But let me tell you this, something every mom has in common. You ready? This is Mother's Day message. They are all sinners in need of a Savior. Happy Mother's Day. Seriously, every mom is a sinner standing condemned by her own actions except for the grace of God. But every mom can live free of condemnation. And every mom can live free of the burden of being perfect. And every mom can live free of the burden of having to control life and control their kids because Jesus died for you and paid the debt that you could not pay He wants you to celebrate with Hannah and celebrate with Mary that he has chosen you in your lowly, sinful estate to be a parent. And he promises to use you. And you do not stand condemned, but you stand loved by faith alone. No matter how much the kids complain or your spouse struggles, you stand loved by God. And that frees you. Listen, it frees you from using your kids as your savior to make you feel significant. And it frees you from using a man to fill up your insecurity. And it frees you to love unconditionally because you've been loved so lavishly. You're free. The victory has been won. He's at work. He is present. And he delights to work in your lowliness. So sinful mom, sing from the rooftops. Your God is at work. He's won the victory. So now you can persist, you can plead, and you can praise your God because of his mercy towards us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you and I thank you that you don't give up on us. You never quit pursuing us. We are not alone. And so, Father, I ask that in this moment that we take the Lord's Supper real briefly as a time of conclusion and as a time of just praying our hearts to you, we ask, God, that you would take this word and you would drive it into our hearts that we might know how to walk in faith, fragile as we are, and cast all of our fears upon you because you care for us. Father, I love you, and I thank you for the unmistakable message that you love us by giving your only son. Thank you for raising him from the dead so that our faith has meaning and all your promises are true. And I pray that you would meet each and every one of us where we are right now and cause us to love you and see you in ways we haven't seen you. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.